0: If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. The book of Luke chapter 14 for our message this morning, The Price of Lemonade. The crowd came quicker than we thought that day. It was one of those days around here when the weather is just right. The timing was perfect on our block for a little extra traffic and business was good at our little lemonade stand. Now some days, uh, at least in our family are those days, you kind of halfway do something and sometimes you just go all the way and the schedule happened to align just right that uh, this lemonade stand project was an all the way kind of day. We had just the right scrap wood, enough time, the kids were excited about it and we went to work putting together our lemonade stand. It was their first. They'd never done anything like this. They weren't so much concerned about the business of the thing. They didn't have a real goal in mind other than just being out with the people and, and giving them what they need. That was all the fun that they needed. And we got out to the curb, we brought everything. We had flags and balloons to get people's attention. We had the lemonade and it made cookies. The kids even made a sign, a menu. It said menu, lemonade, <laughs> cookies. Business was booming. People came quick. It was the right day, the right time. Our neighbors are are kind. And they lined up. And sure enough, the first one got a big glass of cold lemonade and said, how much is it? Well, we thought of everything, but we hadn't discussed that. So I put it up to you. How much is a glass of lemonade worth these days? I guess there's a few factors involved in that. Was it fresh squeezed? Not at our house. (laughs) Was it powder? Yes. Did it have real sugar? Not at our house. Was it one of those little Dixie cups we were handing out? Or was it full-size Solo? That was was the bigger end. How much is lemonade worth? What should a kid be charging these days? Now, some of you folks are going to say something like 10 cents, and that's fine. But we we all know you got a burger and fries for that back then. So (laughs) we should probably scale. Listen, inflation is serious these days, and so we're factoring it in, but the, the patron looks at the kid, the kid looks at me, I look back at the kids, the kids look back at the patron, all of us standing there awkwardly wondering, how much does lemonade cost? What will it cost today to have a glass at your stand, he asked. What will this cost? That's the question that nobody in Jesus' crowd seems to be able to answer. In fact, it sounds like few of them, if anybody, has even asked. Jesus is surrounded by enthusiasm. And in Luke 14, the first thing that we learn is that Jesus turns to speak to a crowd that seems totally unaware that he is on a journey toward Jerusalem. The crowd has gotten huge. He turns around and finds all kinds of eyes on him that are excited to be with him. The Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard once said of the preachers of his day that there are all kinds of them whereby Jesus hath obtained admirers rather than followers. See, Jesus has garnered the attention of a host of admirers. The problem is that he was never all that interested in admirers. But there is a vast expanse between admiration and discipleship. And Jesus is about to place that right in front of them and tell them how to get from one side to the other. The truth is I have people tell me all the time that they admire things that we do here. Maybe that happens to you too. If people associate you with a, a wonderful church like this, you may hear that a lot. People admire not just this place, but these people, what goes on here, what goes on outside of here. But you and I both know that there are a lot of people that admire what happens amidst a people like this with no intention of ever really being a part of it. So you can respect, even venerate something and never come close to participating in it. And Jesus has built a crowd, but it quickly becomes clear that that's not his measure of success. In fact, for Jesus, the large crowd following him is a problem that he needs to turn and address. So he turns and he looks at them, surveys the crowd, makes, uh, there to make sure that they know that it will not be enough in the end just to say we were there or, or we saw his miracles or heard his teaching or ate with him. Jesus dispels of the whole idea that discipleship to him involves just showing up. His crowd has not yet asked what will this cost? They seem completely oblivious as to what this crowd even is. I'm not sure they know why they're following him at all. What is the nature of the journey that they've tagged along for? What is it that they've, they've joined in on? They must have been asking each other, is this, is this a funeral procession we might ask later in Luke's gospel? But That hasn't happened yet. Jesus isn't quite to Jerusalem yet. And really Jesus is the only one who envisions death at the end of this journey. No one else, not even the disciples, have caught on to that quite yet. It's not a a funeral procession. Maybe it's a a march, everyone's excited. They're they're marching towards something with a cause. I'm sure word was spreading, emotions were building up, imaginations running wild. Maybe this is Galilee versus Jerusalem just getting started. Peasants versus power. Laity versus the clergy, Jews versus Romans, Jesus versus the establishment. They thought, this is a march I want to be a part of. Or is it a parade? Now the crowd kind of thinks it is. They're oblivious to any conflict, any price to pay. They don't know anything about a cross to bear. The crowd swells because everybody loves a parade. You can imagine their surprise when Jesus lets them know that's not what this is all about. There are a number of parades that come through our town. Maybe you like to go see them like we do. One of the best parades you can go and see is the cattle drive that starts here on Polk Street. You can go watch 60 Longhorns be paraded down downtown streets. It's a, a sight to be seen. We try to make it down there every time just the, the kids enjoy seeing the animals. Well, okay, the animals and the candy. As big as the longhorns are and as close as they get to you on the curb, nothing beats the candy. The parade scene where people walk by and they have their sack of sweets and they toss them at your feet and say, here, pick that up. It's a strange thing we do, but kids love it. And as soon as the the cattle had gone by, the, the candy becomes all the focus. My kids were scavenging for it like it was never gonna be had again. And what happened a couple of years ago, and we were there at the parade, and, and we had heard about the cattle. We'd even been before, but uh, I guess me and, and my oldest son had missed the memo on, on the periodic staged Old West shootouts that also accompany the 60 Longhorns that walk down Polk Street. So when a a vast expanse opened up in the middle of the parade and there was still candy out in the middle that no child had dared to go and grab yet, it was my oldest son who was the first to be brave enough to venture into the middle of the street that he'd been told not to enter several times. He made his way to the middle, there was candy to be had that nobody had touched. He had his shirt tail pulled up in one hand. We didn't have a bag, he's putting candy in it, grabbing it one after another, it's filling up. There was more out there than he could even hold. His hands are on the ground, his eyes are on it. One hand's holding his shirt, when all of a sudden, pop, pop, pop. He looks up and he's standing between two guns blazing. (laughs) Men with revolvers drawn. A sound so loud he jumped out of his skin both of them pointing their smoking guns at each other, and he's in the middle, and deer in the headlights doesn't do it justice. (laughs) What am I in the middle of? Now, of course, I don't want to make light of any child finding themselves in the midst of, of gunfire. It's only a funny story because it's a true story and because it was a fake story. But they're cap guns, not real ammo, but just noisemakers were imitating an Old West shootout and they had stepped off, paced away. And that's how the gulf opened to get the candy in the middle and suddenly someone who thought they were in a parade finds themselves in the middle of a shootout with no idea how they got there and no idea that it was coming. If he set a record running out into the middle of the street to get the candy, he broke his best speed coming back. And you can end up in a parade and not realize how you got there. You can end up with problems and not realize how they happened. And all these people have crowded around Jesus. They're excited about what's going on. And all of a sudden, they find themselves in the middle of of something they didn't quite bargain for. What is this? Jesus launches into the least crowd-friendly message you could possibly churn up. He turns to all those hasty volunteers. And in some, his word is, think about what you're doing and decide if you are willing to stay with me all the way. See, Jesus' disciples are, are those who change every priority in their lives, conform to his way of the cross. And so he lets them know exactly what it will cost. To take the cup that he offers. Three times in our passage, Jesus uses the same basic refrain Whoever does not cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not cannot be my disciple. The first one comes in verse 26. Whoever comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's one of the more challenging sayings of Jesus in all of Scripture. It makes all the lists of Jesus' difficult sayings. It's enough to make anybody squirm, to make any parent nervous as their child comes down for pastor's pals when that text has just been read, or at least curious to see what the preacher is going to do with that. Hate your father and mother, your brother, your sister, even your own life? Who speaks like this, much less the guy who teaches us to love our enemies? How could he tell us to hate these others? Now, it makes it a little bit more understandable if you understand the the Semitic reference, the language that's being translated here into English. Certainly our language for hate carries with it a certain kind of emotion. It even elicits disgust. We say, I hate you, and that carries with it a whole meaning. And the truth is that in Jesus' language, in the language translated here, I hate you carries not all of that emotion, but more of a, a turning away from, a detachment. It's as if to say, I, I, I love something else more. This thing is, is not loved by comparison. It might help to think about some Old Testament examples, for example, the Genesis 29 tells us that the Lord found out that Rachel was loved, but Leah was hated. It doesn't mean that Leah was despised. What it's saying is that by comparison, Rachel was loved more. And that's not marriage advice or suggestion, but it helps us understand what the Bible means when it talks about one thing being loved and another thing being hated at the same time. If that doesn't make sense, go to Matthew's parallel version of Jesus' saying of this. You could read it says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. But then Jesus says, even your own life. You see, Jesus is saying, don't make your life the end and me the means. No, your life is the means and and I am the end I come before all of that. He's saying, I want you to love me more than any of these other loves that you have in your life. By comparison, in in comparison, you ought to hate those others. When you hold up my love and your love for me next to all of the other loves in your life, they ought to pale in comparison. It's as if Jesus is saying, listen, the, the stars are there all day. You just can't see them because the sun is so bright. I want my love To make all these other pale in comparison. And even if we can rein in the terms a little bit and get over the the hate language, the significance is no less that Jesus' love is to take precedence over all others. And the truth is, the truth is that Jesus' love is the answer to properly loving all of those other things. You say, what kind of God would ask us to give up so much would, would suggest that we Relate to one another like this. It's the God who, Paul says in Romans 8, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And the second time, Jesus says, Whoever does not, cannot be my disciple. Right there, the next verse 27 Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Carrying your cross has become its its own idiom. And certainly after Jesus' death, the language of cross-carrying, of bearing one's cross, takes on a a whole new meaning as the Savior of the world bears his own cross. But what would the first hearers of Jesus' message here have understood? They've never seen Jesus carry a cross. They certainly don't understand yet that that's where he's headed, that these are the uh, inevitable events that will end his life. And when Jesus turns to them and says, "'Pick up your own cross,' Carry it. Come after me. What would that challenge have meant to them? It's hard to to overemphasize just how much shame is connected to crucifixion in the ancient world. The idea that one would be paraded before all of your peers and hung out to dry, literally. It took lives, but really for the Roman government, it wasn't the way that you executed someone. There were other ways to end a life. The cross was all about putting someone in front of everybody else and saying, This is what happens when you question our power. So that any would be follower would know, if you want to do what they were doing, this is what will happen to you. It was a statement to be made. And these terms have been watered down a little bit by overuse, I would guess. We talk about a chronic illness or some physical pain or uh, some difficult people in our life as just our cross to bear. But someone who takes up their cross to those first hearers of Jesus' challenge would have had to have been somebody who is committed to the end. You see, nobody on whom the cross beam of their death device is placed has any other option. The die has been cast, there's no turning back. No one was ever carrying their cross, wondering about or worrying about things that will happen tomorrow. Anyone who's carrying a cross is committed all the way to the end. They're they're there no matter what the cost. There are no distractions for the one who carries a cross. No worry about tomorrow, no business deals to make, nothing else in your mind except the cause to which you've now given your life. What's more is Jesus says it in the present tense. He doesn't say, I want you to carry your cross at some point or I want you to have carried your cross. He says, I want you to daily, he says in Luke 9, daily pick up your cross and come after me. And those two alone would lay before us a cost that's hefty. But a third time, in verse 33, Jesus says, Whoever does not give up everything cannot be my disciples. Whoever does not give up Literally, it could say, uh, say goodbye to, say farewell to everything that you have. You see, just like Jesus is speaking to each and every person in the crowd, he says anyone, whoever, he speaks also about everything that we have. It's all encompassing of the people and all encompassing of their worldly possessions. The demand is total. It would crush the spirit of anybody in the parade that day that thought they were just along for fun. Jesus has no interest in admirers who enjoy good teaching while leaving their fundamental values, their attachments, their whole manner of life generally unchanged. So he says, whoever does not give up everything. And Paul understood this when he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 3. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. All relationships, with all crosses on our back, giving up everything. Jesus lays out the price to his would-be followers, to the whole parade behind him. And you got to think, is this just a hard teaching? Is he just trying to thin the herd a little bit? Is this just bad news for everybody? Or is it possible? Is it possible that in this difficult demand, We find the best news possible. Jesus includes two parables of warning in the middle there. I wasn't skipping over them. He says, who among you, if he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Now, what kind of tower Jesus has in mind isn't perfectly clear. It may have been something local, more agricultural uh, to protect the farm. It may have been a a huge tower, maybe something historical like Herod's aqueduct that never did quite get finished the way that he pitched it. The assumption is that people are usually careful not to embark on on some big project without making reasonably sure that uh, they have the means, the ability, to carry it through to a, a successful end. Everybody knows that. The question Jesus asks, who among you? It's meant to be answered easily. Everybody says none of us. We wouldn't do that. Everybody knows. And what king, he says, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. And both parables portray this great need, the project in front of you. That before taking on a project like this, both of them suggest you need to first sit down, deliberate, take this seriously, tabulate the cost. Take stock before you try to rise up and meet this challenge because it is huge. And so there it is, the price a belonging to Jesus, the cost of discipleship has been made clear to the crowd. To the rich and the poor, the royalty and the peasants, all the same essential decisions are laid out in front of them now. Everyone has the same question to ask. Does it cost more than I am willing or able to pay. Does it cost more than I am able or willing to pay? Now on that, that first point, are you able? The answer is pretty simple actually. Jesus starts every one of those three demands with whoever or anyone. You see, I think Jesus speaks those words at the crowd and I think that he means them. He believes that... Every single one of them is able. And the truth is that every single one of us in this room, based on the demands he's just laid out, as costly as they sound, every one of us is able. He sees the hearts and the minds, Jesus does, that so capable of giving everything. He sees people who long for something that matters, that ache deep down to give everything to something bigger than themselves. It sounds at first glance like bad news, but I think for most of us, this might be the best news ever. It was for a few in the Bible. Simon and James and John and Levi. Every one of them reported to have left everything that they had to follow Jesus. Twice he tells people to sell all their possessions, give things to the poor, become his Disciples. Peter informs him that they have left their own things and and followed him. History tells us Peter even had a family left behind again and again to go and follow Jesus. Over and over again, this pattern of sacrificial giving pops up. People are responding. Jesus knows if they can do it a tax collector here, a, a few sons of a fisherman there, anyone. Is able, And the beauty of, of everything that Jesus demands, the beauty of everything as the cost, is that anyone can provide it. Had Jesus spelled out a specific price, maybe there would be some among us who could meet it and some who couldn't. If Jesus had measured by the world's demands that maybe there'd be some among us who could give less and some not quite as much. And maybe some would be in, but some would be out. But the truth is, anyone can give everything. So we know that all of us, like the crowd Jesus speaks to and Jesus believes, all of us are able. So the real question left in the hands of any disciple who rightly hears the words of Jesus is not, am I able, but am I willing And here's the interesting thing. I think that you are. I think you're dying for something that means something. I think your life has taught you that everything worth doing comes at a great cost. Nothing is three simple easy steps or or a quick sticker that you can slap on the back of something and all the problems solved. You know that something that matters costs something. And you pay the price every day. It may not be for this, but you give your life and bend over backwards and and do everything that you can to make things happen for all kinds of reasons. All of us are longing for something bigger than ourselves. Jesus says, Here it is. You know, the trouble with setting up shop on the curb to sell lemonade is that you also sign up to be a patron. To anybody else who does, at least that's my view. If you're gonna pitch your wares to the neighborhood, you better be ready to go and patron the others who do the same. So when the boys around the corner set up their lemonade stand, we parked our car and made our way over to their house to make sure we returned the favor. I threw a few extra dollars in my wallet to make sure we had the right change to give them what they needed for all the kids to get a cup of lemonade. We walked up to their table, we got what we needed. I asked them, how much does it cost? And the boys looked back at me and said, oh, it's just whatever you would like to pay. It's brilliant, by the way. They <laughs> said, but did we, did we tell you what we're saving for? I said, no, you didn't. What are you saving for? I was impressed they even had a plan, both of them in unison, a ninja warrior course. Wow, okay, you may not be familiar with this. It's not as elaborate as it sounds. A few things strung between trees that help you climb and play outside. And I was excited, not just because they had a plan, which is impressive enough, because anything that gets kids outside is, is good news to me. I was glad to help in their new venture. I loved the idea of Ninja Warrior Course. And suddenly the few dollars that I'd put in my wallet to get each of our kids a cup of lemonade didn't even seem worth it. I got out my wallet and opened it up and pulled out everything I had and put it in their jar. The price of lemonade is, was that day, at least, whatever anyone is willing to give. And so it is with the kingdom of God. But the truth is, that if you knew what Jesus was building, if you knew what God was up to with the things that he requires, if you knew where this was all headed, you would reach down deep and you would lay down everything that you have. You're dying to do it. I believe it. And if you haven't yet, I'm convinced it's because you haven't rightly understood what God is up to. The master builder is building something never seen before. He comes with a kingdom unlike ours to make all things new. The king is coming, waging war, a war that he's already won. And he invites you to enjoy the victory. He has counted the cost. He has made it possible. He has ensured that if you will come, he will be able. The only question that remains is, are you willing And I'm convinced that Jesus believes you're able. And I think that if you first sit down and evaluate, if you can see what he's making here in our midst, when you really see what Jesus is saving for, you would gladly give everything, that you have. He says you're able, but are you willing? Let's pray. Father, with the cross before us and the world behind us, we pray you would remind us That you are the only thing worth giving everything for. And that our hearts will be restless until they rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.